My name is Brittany Bailey, and I am a single foster parent. A couple years ago, I got interested, and I didn't feel like I was quite ready yet. Um, and so I became a CASA and got to learn the system, and I was a CASA for about a little over a year. And then I decided, I think I'm ready. Like, well, as ready as you'll ever be. And so I finished up my classes, and I got certified last um, May. And I got my first placement in July. She's adorable. <laughs> She's almost two. I really, really love being a single foster parent. Parenting in general is hard. Foster parenting is even harder, dealing with kids with trauma. Single foster parenting, I feel like, is a little bit harder because I'm doing it by myself. So when we go to court or we have, you know, meetings with bios or, you know, whoever's involved in the case, I go alone, which is, was really hard for me at the beginning. This is a response from what God has done for me. I may not be able to be everything, but I can provide a safe and loving home. I can give some of the gifts that I've been given through my family and give a child that kind of support system through me. And you're inviting a whole lot of chaos and messy, messy lives into yours. And I told that to my family up front too. I was like, I'm inviting a lot of messy into our lives. My family's really involved and very encouraging. I don't think I could do it without them. My parents are awesome. They just step right up and are great grandparents to my kiddo. And I feel like love is action. Love is not stagnant. How I show love is from what I'm doing. Like I'm stepping out there and taking a chance on a little kid and showing them love in some of their hardest days that they've ever had. I mean, when the, a child comes into foster care, they're ripped away from everything they ever know. And I mean, that's gotta be their worst day. So I can be there and just love on them and support them and let them know that they're important and they're special and God loves them, even though they're going through this horrible thing. Well, it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. We're, we're just grateful that you've come. If you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we welcome you as well. We are in this series called Resilient. We're taking a look at the life of Daniel in the Old Testament. And we've arrived at chapter 2 just as Daniel begins his work and service in the palace to King Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to know that today is part one of a two-part sermon. We're only going to get halfway through today, so you've got to come back next week to hear how the story ends, all right? Will you do that? All right, good. I'll see you next week then. With every relationship come certain demands, and we generally do our best to comply. But when those demands become unrealistic, that's when the problems begin to arise, Unrealistic demands in marriage tend to ruin the relationship. You know, marriages simply cannot survive with unreasonable expectations. Parents can easily drive a wedge between them and their children with unrealistic demands. Friendships dissolve because one person expects more of the friendship than what the other person can or is willing to give. And when it comes to our jobs, unrealistic demands in the workplace can make the whole work environment miserable for all concerned. A few years ago, we took an actual survey of the congregation about what they felt was unreasonable or unrealistic or too high of expectation in the workplace. And I called out a few of those, saved them through the years, because this is a reminder of what happens often with all of us as we go to work day by day. So here were some of the responses of what was considered unrealistic and unreasonable in the workforce. 
Common sense is not used to make decisions. And yet I'm required to do what the boss demands. Not because it's the best decision, but because it's the boss's choice. I work too hard for the amount I'm paid. That one showed up a lot uh, in the survey. Rude customers swear at me, call me stupid, and yell about things I can't control. I'm held responsible for the mistakes of others. I'm assigned increased responsibility with no extra pay. Poor communication. Not being informed about those things that directly affect my job. I'm required to form a committee before doing anything, and by the time all the appropriate people are asked to serve on the committee, the job could have been done. My boss doesn't do any work, but spends his time pestering the rest of us so we can't do our work. My boss is horrible. These recurring themes share one thing in common. They point to something unreasonable in the workplace. Now that last one, my boss is horrible, makes for a great transition to our text this morning. Daniel's boss was horrible too. You want an example? Let's go down the road about nine years. This is nine years after Daniel has been deported and Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah on the throne in Jerusalem and, and makes him a vassal king over a vassal state. They owed tribute and everything to Babylon. Well, about 11 years into this rule, Zedekiah has a really dumb choice. It's a foolish decision that he decides he can overthrow the Babylonian yoke that is on him. And so he rebels against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has had it up to here. He sends his troops in. They lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, a siege that lasts for about two years. And toward the end of that siege, when it became inevitable that the city would be destroyed, Zedekiah and his cabinet and his family sneak out of the city in disguise but are caught by the Babylonian troops. They are brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar lines up every one of them, his cabinet, all of his children, and methodically kills each one before Zedekiah's eyes. And when the grisly deed was complete... The soldiers took a hot sword and gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. The last thing he ever saw was the slaughter of his friends and his family. That was Daniel's boss. Perhaps you'll feel better about going to work tomorrow in light of that. So let's go to the text. Daniel is still very young at this point in time. He is just beginning his palace role when chapter 2 opens. And in verse 1 we read this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Now I want you to take note of something here. The Babylonian kings counted their first year on the throne as an apprentice year. So when the text states in his second year, we would view that as third year. Which makes sense because there was a three-year period of training for Daniel and his compatriots to get ready for palace service. So Daniel is brand new now to the palace when this happens. All of us dream. I, I have recurring dreams. Do any of you have recurring dreams? Okay, all right, so I'm not alone in this. Mine, mine always re revolve around the church somehow. 
I get up to preach, and I don't have my notes. I can't find them anywhere. I don't know what I'm going to say, and I panic. Or I can't get to the church. I'm stuck somewhere on the road. I don't know why I'm stuck. I just can't get there. It's already time for the service to start. Nobody knows where I'm at and, 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 and what's going on, and I'm in a panic. Or I arrive to church, but I'm not fully dressed when I get here, and I have no idea why I'm not fully dressed when I get here. These are nightmares, and they keep coming up in my life over and over. But I've never had a dream where I thought God was speaking to me in the dream. This dream disturbed the king greatly because he was convinced it was no ordinary dream, and indeed, it wasn't. Unfortunately, in his quest to uncover the puzzle, he became frightfully unreasonable. Verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. This would be the king's brain trust. We might refer to them as his cabinet. And they're comprised of four groups. Magicians, who were really also scholars. Enchanters, these were the ones that consulted the zodiac. Sorcerers, more likely mediums who tried to contact the dead. They were probably demon-possessed. And then the astrologers. Now the word translated astrologer is also the word Chaldean, which meant two things. The Chaldeans were known as those who studied the stars. Today we would call them astronomers. And number two, they were considered the wisest in the land. They were at the top of the heap when it came to wisdom. Studier of the stars, wise men. 600 years later, Chaldeans, wise men from the east, magi, if you please, would journey to Bethlehem to visit the child whose star had appeared in the sky. By that time, Babylonia had become Persia, and I'm convinced that it was Daniel's ministry and Daniel's prophetic words that set the stage for just such a visit following the birth of Christ. It might well have been, it might well have been, we don't know, but it might well have been that these very men who came in search of the Christ child were the descendants of these Chaldeans in Daniel's presence of the king. For he would have had untold influence in prophesying the coming of the Christ child. We don't know, but it's sure interesting, isn't it? Again, in, in verse 2. When they came in, this is the cabinet now, and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, Okay, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. They're starting to get a little bit antsy here. The king is now starting to get frustrated. And he answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. 
The astrologers who are now in a panic answered the king. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death as well. Wow. You talk about an unrealistic demand. I had a dream, but you're going to tell me the dream and then you're going to interpret. I mean, who could do that? There is no positive possible outcome in the palace of this request now I realize that most of us don't have to face down quite so threatening of a demand on our jobs or in our homes or in our social circles but unreasonable expectations will greatly impact all your relationships whether it's a friendship or it's from your spouse or it's from your boss you may not be facing death but you might face a major loss a broken relationship a demotion, a pay cut, or even a pink slip. When there seems to be no earthly answer, when there seems to be no positive solution, when you can't even begin to fathom how you're going to get out of a situation, how do you respond? Where do you turn? How do you act? What do you do? Well, here are a few lessons that come out of the story. There'll be more next week, but here are a few that, keep, that we need to keep in mind regarding unrealistic demands. Here's the first one. Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. She woke up one morning and said to her husband, last night I dreamed that you bought me a new gold necklace. What do you think that dream means? And her husband responded, well, I don't know for sure, but your birthday's coming next Tuesday. Perhaps, perhaps you'll learn the meaning of your dream on Tuesday. The next night, she dreamed of a pearl necklace. The third night, of a diamond necklace. She shared it with her husband. His response was the same both times. Tuesday arrived with great expectations, and he gave her a beautifully wrapped present. She tore the paper off, and before her was a glistening new book, The Meaning of Dreams. <laughs> I'm pretty sure her husband got something unexpected in return from that, too. Now, if you think you're going to go through life and everything is going to go just as you expect, you're in for a real disappointment. Life is not that way. And to survive, we need to be prepared to handle the unexpected. It seems Nebuchadnezzar's brain trust was completely caught off guard by his unreasonable request. What's more, they didn't have a backup plan. They didn't know what to do. They were in a state of panic. They were just waiting to die. We tend to be so surprised when people don't act the way we expect them to act. We tend to be so caught off guard when things happen in life that we just didn't think were going to happen in life. We shouldn't be so naive. Life is not predictable. Your employer unexpectedly files chapter 11 bankruptcy and you're suddenly out of a job. You open the letter from the attorney's office only to learn that your spouse has filed for divorce. The doctor cannot find a heartbeat in the womb and all your hopes and dreams for that child fade away into nothingness. 
Expect the unexpected. And when you are somewhat prepared that life is not predictable, you will not be caught off guard quite so badly. Somebody said the greatest unexpected thing is old age. Old age is the most unexpected of all things that happen in life. And I think that's true. You get there far sooner than you imagine. And keep this thought in your hip pocket. When things don't go as you expect, don't lose hope. God can take the worst case scenario and bring good out of it. And remember that God's plan is always better than any original plan that we might have. So don't retreat, retool. When a road is blocked, take a path. When the door slams in your face, bust through the wall. Expect the unexpected and you won't give up and you won't lose hope and you'll be able to deal with whatever life lays in your lap. But if you are expecting everything to go smoothly, you're going to be hurting when the unexpected happens. Here's the second one. Don't overreact. Don't overreact. When the unexpected does happen, don't overreact because that never helps the situation. Barney on Mayberry was always overreacting to everything that happened in town. This is one of my favorite scenes when Barney and the lovable Otis, who happens to be behind bars at the moment, get into it. Just take a look. (laughs) The episode only just gets worse. Otis eventually sues the county. It's just one escalation after the other. That's, That's why overreacting is never good. As a matter of fact, when we overreact, we often say things that hurt. Those words only make the issue worse. Overreacting leads to problem escalation, not problem solution. I like this quote, don't make a permanent decision for your temporary emotion. How often have we done that? When we overreact, it makes us appear immature, especially in the eyes of those who are not emotionally involved. An immature reaction chips away at our argument, which loses its logic the minute we overreact. And such overreaction also chips away at our integrity. People, it is hard to maintain character in the midst of an emotional explosion. Don't overreact. Consider this. After we unleash our frustration, we may discover that we're at fault. Perhaps we didn't have all the information before we drew our conclusions. Or perhaps we made too many assumptions. Or perhaps we never considered that we might be part of the problem. So stay calm. Get all of the facts that you can before you draw a conclusion and don't overreact. Dr. Hans Selye wrote, he said, It is not our stress that kills us. It is our reaction to it. Or perhaps our overreaction to it. Here's the third thing. Be realistic in your own demands. What is it that causes us to make unrealistic demands of others? I I think it's pride. You know, the scripture warns us against the destructive power of pride. And I'm not talking about pride as in being proud of your children or being proud of your neighborhood or community or wherever you live. That's not the kind of pride we're talking about. The pride the Bible condemns is the pride that says, I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. I am completely self-sufficient on my own. It has been said, pride hides a man's faults to himself, but magnifies them to everyone else. Let me give you an example. Pertinent to this week. 
When Roman Emperor Julius Caesar reorganized the calendar, he gave February 29 days and 30 days in the leap year. The month Quintilis, which contained 31 days, was renamed in honor of Julius Caesar, and it is now called July. Julius, July. Got it? All right. Later, the month Sextilis was renamed to honor Emperor Caesar Augustus. August. Augustus, August. So you, you got the, 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 uh, the picture here. But there was a problem. August only had 30 days, and Caesar Augustus would not let the memory of Julius surpass him. So... He stole a day from February to make his month equal to that of July. As a result, July and August are the only two months out of the year with back-to-back -back 31 days. February paid the price of an emperor's pride. So this, at the end of the week, when, when February swells by a day, here's your leap day assignment. Pause for a moment. And recognize the fact that February lost a day due to pride. What have I lost due to my pride? Take an inventory. Ask yourself the question, how has my pride, my self-sufficiency, my I don't need God attitude been destructive in my life and in my circle? You see, true humility always wins the day. And if we don't want others to make unrealistic demands of us, then we should be patient and reasonable with what we expect from them. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the, uh, the, the guy that had a debt that was greater than he could pay in a hundred lifetimes, and he comes to the king, and the king says, you know what, this, I, I'm going to bless you today. I'm just going to erase that debt completely. You are free to go. And this man walks out of the palace having a debt of a hundred lifetimes, erased by the king, and he runs into a friend, a, a, a fellow citizen of, of the community that owes him a small debt, a debt that could easily be paid with just a little bit of time. And the man takes it out on him. He said, I'm going to put you in prison until you pay me every last penny of that debt. And when the king heard about it, the king brought that man back into the palace and said, what's wrong with you? I forgave you a debt you couldn't pay in a hundred lifetimes. And here was a fellow that you couldn't extend the same mercy and kindness. You were unrealistic in your demands. And so I'm going to reinstate the debt and I'm going to throw you into prison until you pay the very last penny. In that parable, Jesus was teaching us that we need to be reasonable in our expectations of others. Don't expect more from somebody else than what you are willing to give yourself. Don't let pride make you unreasonable and unrealistic. Here's the fourth thing. Seek the Lord's wisdom when everything else seems unreasonable. When the supposed wise men of Babylon could not meet the king's unrealistic expectation, he unleashed a volley of criticism on them that ended up in the promise of death. Have you ever felt the unreasonable wrath of a person in charge? Has anybody ever dumped on you? Have you ever been humiliated by a spouse, a parent, a friend, a peer, or a boss in front of others or in public? The criticism may be deserved, but that doesn't make it any easier to handle. We just don't handle criticism well. I think we can all relate to what Franklin Jones wrote. He said, honest criticism is hard to take, especially when it comes from a relative, a friend, an acquaintance, or a stranger. <laughs> Pretty much covers everything, doesn't We just don't like criticism from anyone. But there is always value in criticism. 
We need to learn how to view criticism as a tool to help, not as a weapon to hurt. When you're hurting under the critic's hammer, talk to a trusted friend. The best gift that a genuine friend can give is an honest evaluation of our flaws, as uncomfortable as that may be. Surgery, folks, is never pleasant, but in the long run, it may save your life. See the tough words of a trusted friend as character surgery, intended to have a positive and lasting effect. However, when we are doing something good, when we're doing something that we know God wants us to do, when we're being something that God wants us to be, when you know you're in the right, criticism is really hard to take. And unfortunately, it seems that the bulk of criticism can be negative, destructive, and often unwarranted. It may come from somebody who's jealous. It may come from somebody who's resentful. You don't know. But when you're unfairly, unwarrantedly criticized, take a lesson from nature. When you know you're doing what God wants you to do, remember this lesson from nature. Now, you know I love illustrations from creation, so try this one on. Crows have 16 primary wing feathers, or more appropriately called pinions. Ravens, on the other hand, have 17 wing pinions. Crows, 16. Ravens, 17. Therefore, the difference between a crow and a raven is only a matter of opinion. I should apologize, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Here's my point. When you're criticized for doing what is right, for doing and being who God has called you to be, remember the critic, that's just their opinion. They're coming from some obscure point of view. It's just their opinion. If you're following the Lord, if you're doing what God wants you to do, don't lose heart in that destructive criticism. I suspect that's how Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's counsel felt. Tell us your dream and we'll help you out, but you can't expect us to know the dream and the interpretation. Understand how you feel when it comes to unrealistic criticism, and that should make us cautious about criticizing others. When it comes to sharing criticism, put it into terms that you could handle, that you could swallow. <laughs> Comedian Steve Martin said, before you criticize a man, walk a mile in his shoes. That way, when you do criticize him, you'll be a mile away and you'll have his shoes. <laughs> None want the critique. All want encouragement. But remember, some of each will probably do us a world of good. But it needs to be done with love and kindness. And while we don't like it, I think criticism is necessary because it provides us motivation for improvement. Remember what we learned from Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 23 says, In the end, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery. And Proverbs 27, 9 says, The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. So be genuine with your praise and be gentle with your critique. Nebuchadnezzar's hopeless cabinet of advisors believed that only the gods could accomplish what he was asking them. And their response was, and they don't live among men. Ah, but Daniel knew different. And so do we. The great news of the gospel is that God does indeed live among us. 
And he can bring victory out of the most unrealistic demands we face in life when we follow his son, Jesus Christ, with all of our hearts and all of our souls. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.